Welcome to River of Life, and thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy this teaching, we want to encourage you to share it with a family member or friend. Also, visit River of Life this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. For service times and directions, visit rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to find your seats, we've got 7 o'clock, so we'll get started. If you got your Bibles with you tonight and you want to follow along, um, tonight we're going to do something a little different. Uh, we're only going to be looking at one verse, and we're going to kind of use this verse as a springboard uh, to a discussion, which is a little unusual for us, but I think it's time we need to talk about this. Um, tonight, we're going to address the question, do we have a free will? Now, let me say up front that the answer to this question is fairly obvious, so I'll just go ahead and answer it for you. Yes. Of course, we have a free will. Uh, the evidence for that is right in front of us. You decided to come here tonight. Nobody held a gun to your head. Nobody forced you to do that or coerced you in any way. You just made a decision to come. Other people decided not to come. Okay, Those are absolutely free choices. However, one of the things I think you'll find out in the next 30 minutes or so is that this question is not nearly as cut and dried as most people think it is. It's not nearly as cut and dried as most people think it is. Now, let's take a quick review first of how we got to this question. What are we doing here in the middle of Romans 9 answering the question, do we have a uh, free will? Well, if you remember in verses 1 through 5, Paul lays out a problem, right? The Jewish people who are chosen by God, privileged by God, they are accursed and cut off from Christ because they have rejected Him as their uh, Messiah. Now this raises a problem, a crisis for Paul, because it seems possible, just possible, that God has not kept His promises to the Jews. And so this raises the question, has God's Word failed? Now in verse 6, Paul answers this. He says, no. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So this is Paul's answer to the, uh, to the question, right? And he gives us, by the way, two examples. Uh, the first example is Abraham's son. Isaac is chosen and Ishmael is not. Then Abraham's grandsons, Jacob is chosen and, Ish uh, I'm sorry, and Esau is not. So this is Paul's explanation of why God's Word has not failed. God has always been choosing uh, a remnant of the, of the people of Israel to be children of God or children of promise. And God has always, always kept His Word to that, um, to that remnant. Now, that's Paul's explanation up to verse 13 of why God's Word has not failed. However, that raises another question. Is God wrong for doing it that way? Or as Paul says in, in, uh, in verse 14, is there unrighteousness with God? 
Paul says, certainly not. And then he gives us his answer in verse 15. For God said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. What Paul says is this is what it means to be God. God can do whatever he wants to do. In fact, he can make these decisions completely unconstrained by anything outside of himself, including, Paul says in verse 16, human will or human effort. Now, last week, Paul pushed it a little further and he brought Pharaoh into the equation. And he says, for God said to Pharaoh, for this reason, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So as we come to verse 18, what was Paul's conclusion? Okay. Here it was. So then, Paul says, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, we covered that last week and I asked the question at the end of the lesson. How do we know we've got it right? How do we know that we've got the right interpretation? By the way, there are other people that have other interpretations. How do we know that this chapter isn't talking about nations and not individual people? How, How do we know that God is not choosing people who, because he foreknows that in the future they will choose him? How do we know that God is only hardening people Because they first uh, hardened themselves. How do we know that those interpretations aren't correct? By the way, how do we know any interpretation is is correct? I went last week. Somebody pointed out to me after we posted to YouTube. Somebody posted a comment. And this is the comment they posted on YouTube on chapter 9. They said, Paul isn't teaching that God chose Jacob and did not choose Esau. Paul's overall message is that God chose everybody. God loves and predestined everybody. No one is not chosen. Well, that's a take on Romans 9 I've never heard before. But again, how do we know that's not right? Well, here's how we know. Look at verse 19. Immediately after saying, he he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, Paul says this, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You see, the fact is, if any of those other interpretations are true, then this would make no sense. But if Paul is really saying, he's really saying that God chooses some to have mercy on and make children of promise, and he chooses others to harden and show his glory in another way, if that's what he really means, then Paul is reading my mind, because that's exactly my objection. Why do you find fault with me? God, if you've already decided who you're going to have mercy on, and you've already decided who you're going to harden, what's my responsibility? Why are you blaming me? Everybody with me? It's exactly what we should be saying. It's exactly what we should be thinking if we're interpreting this correctly. Now, this is as close as Paul will get to discussing free will. If you've already read ahead, by the way, in verses 20 and 21, Paul's going to move on. He's not, in fact, to be quite honest, he's not interested in all in talking about our, our puny little will. He wants to talk about God. 
He wants to talk about how great God is, how magnificent God is. He's not interested really in talking about us. This is as close as he will get to the subject of do we have a free will, which is what the objector is saying. Why do you find fault with me if you've already decided things? Now, Paul may not talk about it, but we need to. Because as we've gone through Romans 9, many of you have come up to me and asked this question again and again. What about free will? What about free will? So tonight, we are going to try our best to answer this question. Do we have free will? Now, I'm going to do this in, I can't remember, five or six parts. I'm going to do it in little pieces. And we're going to kind of walk down uh, through this thing. And you better put your thinking hat on. Because I'm going to challenge some of you a little bit um, in, in some of the things that we're going to talk about. <clears throat> so here's part one, uh, which I'm calling a definition. In order for you and I to have a true free will, and I'm putting that word true in front of it, we should be able to come to a choice, for example, option A or option B, choice A or choice B. We should be able to come to that. We should be able to weigh out all our options, the pros and the cons, and then we should be able to make a decision that is not influenced in any way. By the way, there's a name for that. It's called libertarian free will. Now, this is the most common and the most prevalent view of, of free will in our culture. Uh, it is the most prevalent view of free will in our church. And most people just assume it to be true. That you and I come to every choice and we look at the pros and the cons and, and we're not really influenced in any way and we just make a, a completely free decision. Now, here's the thing. Now, this is important. For us to have true free will, nothing prior to that decision can influence the decision. No prejudice, no inclination, no disposition, no desire. For it to be completely free, really free, you can't come to the choice with anything influencing you one way or the other. Does that make sense? Because here's the thing. If anything I bring to the table inclines me to choose one thing over the other, then it's not true free will. Everybody got that? You have to, a true free will means I am a, I'm a blank slate. I'm a, I'm a neutral. When I come to this choice, I don't bring anything to the table. I'm just, I, I can weigh the pros and cons here and I can weigh the pros and cons there. And I just make the best decision, but I don't, I'm not influenced in any way to one thing over the other. Another way to say this is nothing previous to the choice can influence or determine the choice. That is something that's called libertarian free will or true free will. Now, what's attractive about this to most people is that it sees us as neutral. We are, we are blank slates. We are not pre-inclined to choose number A or choice A, and we're not pre-inclined to choose B. Everybody with me? By the way, as I said, that is the most commonly held view in our culture, in our church, of free will, and it is completely bogus. It is totally and completely bogus. It does not exist in no way, shape, form, or fashion. Now, we should have, 
There's a lot of problems with that view, by the way. I'm going to give you two. One is a, a, is, is a problem we should have as Christians, and the other is just a problem we should have as just thinking human beings. Okay? So the first one is a spiritual problem. Here's the problem with that. You see, the Bible is not just concerned with what choice we make. The Bible is just as concerned with what we bring to the choice. Let me say that again. The Bible isn't just concerned with what choice you make. The Bible is concerned is what your reasons are, what your intentions are, what your motivations are that cause you to choose that choice. For example, 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, For the Lord does not see as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. See, we see the choice. We see the action, but God's looking on the inside to see what led with that. Let me give you an example, and I'm going to give you a bunch of examples tonight. Two women have a choice to make. They can volunteer in a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen or a food bank, or they cannot volunteer. Okay? They both have a choice in front of them. And they both choose to volunteer in this, uh, in this homeless shelter. Okay? So here they are. They're, they're cooking in this, this homeless shelter. And you need me? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. So they're, they're volunteering in this homeless shelter, right? So when you look at them from the outside, they look the same. But how they got to this decision is completely different. You see, one woman is a Christian. And she read in the Bible where it says, Do your good works before men so that they might glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or maybe she read in the Bible where Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. So she's, she's volunteering because she wants to bring glory to God. She wants to serve Christ by serving others. And by the way, what that means is that her choice, her act, literally has moral and eternal significance. Are you with me? The other woman, completely different. She's not a Christian at all. She, maybe she's wealthy. And she feels guilty about having so much. And, and one of the ways that she, she tries to assuage her guilt is by volunteering. Or, or maybe her religion says that you have to earn your way to heaven. So she's doing it for that reason. But she's not doing it to bring glory to God. And by the way, that act is her own reward. It has no moral, no eternal significance whatsoever. So that's the first problem as Christians, this idea that we come to a choice with no intentions or no reasons or no motivations, that would actually, at the end of the day, how could such an act ever have moral significance? There's another problem, and this is more of just a rational or logical problem. R.C. Sproul uses the example when talking about free will of Alice in Wonderland. If you've ever read the book, uh, she's on this road and she comes up to this fork, right? She needs to go left or right and she don't know which way to go or which way to take. So she looks up in the tree and she sees the uh, Cheshire cat, right? And she asked the cat, she said, which road should I take? And uh, he asked the obvious question, well, where are you going? And she said, I don't know. And his answer to her was, well, then I guess it don't matter. If you don't know where you're going, then what difference does it make which road that you take? Now, at this point... Alice has four choices in front of her, okay? She can go to the left, she can go to the right, she can turn around and go back the way she came, or she can just stand there and do nothing, which is also a choice. 
Now here's the question, which one will she choose? Put yourself in her shoes for one moment. You've got four choices. Which one will you choose? Here's the thing. If you don't have a reason or a motivation to choose one over the other, you'll actually choose nothing. You, you will be paralyzed. Have you ever thought about that? You've got two choices. Why do you choose one thing over the other? If you don't have a reason to choose this one over that one, you'll never choose either one. Now, by the way, let me back up. Some of you might say to me, well, come on. Nobody's just going to stand there till she dies. Nobody would do that. Sooner or later, she would realize I got to do something or I'm going to starve to death. And I would say, exactly. Now she's motivated. Now she's got a reason to make a choice. She doesn't want to die and she will choose something. But it turns out that you have to have reasons to make choices. In fact, it turns out that this, this view of free will is actually an impossibility. It cannot happen. You have to have reasons and desires and motivations to make choices. Let me give you an example. I had to get dressed tonight to come here, right? And uh, I do that every Wednesday night. I work at home, so normally I get up every morning, I put on flip-flops and a... And a and shorts and a and a t-shirt. That's my that's what I wear every day. But on Wednesday night, I have to get I have to get dressed. So I walk into my closet, and a few weeks ago, uh, I knew I would be here eventually teaching this lesson. And I began to think about why did I choose what I chose to wear? Why did I? What was my thinking? I just slowed it down. And said, okay, what are you thinking when you choose something? And turn and it turned out that there's I have a system. So what I do is I walk into my closet, and the first thing on my mind is, what did I wear last week? Because Kathy says that you can't do that, that you would look like a fool if you wore two things. Don't tell her, but sometimes I have to actually go watch YouTube to figure out what it was that I wore last week, because I, I can't remember. So, so I have a desire not to look foolish, Right? When I walk in there, I have a desire not to look foolish. I have a desire to please Kathy. So whatever I wore last week comes off the, the lineup. It's not an option. And then I look and say, what's wrinkled? Because I have a strong desire not to iron anything. Right? So if it's wrinkled, it comes out of the lineup. Now, whatever's left now, now, now it's all about vanity. Okay. Well, what is it that makes me look good? See, because the, the thing is, I've got some shirts that I really like, but for some reason, they are shrinking right in this area right here. And I look at that shirt and say, man, if I wear that, they are, that's all they're going to see while I'm walking up and down. And, and they're going to be thinking, man, he needs to lose a few. So I have to put them out of the lineup. So I'm left with a few. Are you with me? See, you, you may not articulate it. You may not think it through, but there's always reasons behind your choices. Now, it may seem to us sometimes that we do make decisions for no apparent reason, but we don't. That's an impossibility. I want you to think for a moment of where you're sitting tonight, and I wonder, could you articulate why you sat where you're sitting? If you had to tell me, what was your thinking? Why did you sit where you're, you're sitting there's reasons for it. I can tell you what you didn't do. Nobody walked in here tonight and stopped and looked at these 
500 seats or whatever there is and, and, and weighed the pros and cons of each seat and said, well, if I'm over here, I get this view. And did anybody do that? No, my guess is 99.9% of you walked in here and you were predestined to sit exactly where you sat last week because I sit here and I see you sit in the same seats week after week after week after week. But let's just say it was your first time. Why did you sit where you sat? Well, some people like to sit up front. Some people like to sit in the back. Some people like aisle seats. Some people like middle seats. Some of you are sitting where you're sitting because you wanted to sit by somebody. Some of you are sitting where you're sitting because you didn't want to sit by somebody. And some of you just may, so, may be so lazy you didn't want to walk, so you just plopped down in the first seat you could, you could find. The point is, it may look like there's no reason for sitting where we're sitting, but there is. There's always a reason for our choices. So as we come to the end of this part one, this is what we've learned. There is no such thing as true free will. We are not a blank slate. We are not neutral beings. We always bring in, uh, inclinations and influences and desires to every single choice that we make. Part two, the strongest wins. Jonathan Edwards, who, by the way, was voted several years ago by Encyclopedia Britannica as the greatest mind that this country has ever produced. He said this in his book, The Freedom of the Will. Free moral agents always act according to the strongest desire they have at the moment of choice. See, he understood that we all have desires, but he took it to another level. He said, not only do you have desires, you will always choose according to whatever your strongest desire is in the moment of choice. Now, it should be obvious to us, I hope, that we all have conflicting desires, especially as Christians. But let me give you an example. When you commit a sin, in that moment that you commit that sin... Your desire to commit that sin is stronger in that moment than your desire to obey Christ. Don't you think about that? See, we all have a desire to obey Christ. But at the same time, we battle this flesh. As James, is, James says, we're led away or tempted by our own desires. So we've got this, this desire to serve Christ. And we've got these desires over here that temp, are tempting us to sin. But if you sin in that moment that you sin, your desire to do that was stronger than your desire to obey Christ. And, and this should be obvious, right? In fact, flip it on its head and ask this question. What if in that moment your desire to obey Christ was stronger than your desire to sin? What would you have done? You wouldn't have sinned. Your, your strongest desire is going to, to win out. By the way, it should also be obvious that our desires can fluctuate. It's 9.30 at night. You walk in the kitchen. you got a craving. And you open that refrigerator. I'm sure, am I the only one? I open that refrigerator and I just stand there. Or that pantry and I just stand there. And I'm looking and, oh, there it is. There's that banana pudding. And it just, you know, it just speaks to me, right? There's, there's like this synchronicity that happens and... Right? I've got this craving, but at the same time, I've got a desire to eat healthy. I've got a desire to, to lose a, a few pounds. Which one's going to win? 
Maybe that morning the doctor called and said, man, we got your blood work back and you are right on the edge of diabetes. And if you don't lose some weight, it's not going to be good. So you open that refrigerator and all you can hear is the doctor's words. And at that moment, your desire to live healthy or eat healthy is greater than your craving and it wins out. But sometimes, whichever your strongest desire, that's what you're going to choose. By the way, let me, let me, let me address this. Sometimes, sometimes we can be coerced into doing something we don't want to do, right? But it turns out all coercion does is just change our strongest desire. Let me explain. Again, this is an example from R.C. Sproul. You're walking down the street. A man walks up to you, put a gun to your head and says, your money or your life. Now, listen, there is nothing in me that wants to give my money to this guy. I didn't get up that morning with a strong desire to give away my, my wallet. So I don't want to do it. But what he did by putting that gun to my head is he just changed the paradigm. The paradigm is no longer give the money or don't give the money. Now the choices are live or die. Which is your strongest desire? Most people are going to, my strongest desire is to live. Here, take my money. Now, by the way, there may be some person who that choice is presented to them and their paradigm is something different. They may see a paradigm of resist or don't resist. And they may think, you know what? I don't care if you kill me. I am not giving in. I will not give you this wallet. If their desire to resist is that strong, guess what? They'll resist. Whatever your strongest desire is, is going to win out. So these are the two things that we've learned so far. First of all, true free will does not exist. We are not blank slates. We are not uh, neutral beings. We always come to the plate. We always come to the choice with desires and motivations and inclinations. And we always choose according to our strongest desire. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Part three, who are you? We need to ask the question, where do our desires come from? I want to go back to my closet, right? I mentioned when I walk into my closet, uh, hanging right here are all my shirts and all my pants. They're right here. What I didn't mention is over to the right on the shelves are my, all my shorts and all my T-shirts. But you see, when I walk into that closet on a Wednesday night, the shorts and the t-shirts never come into the equation. They don't even get considered. I have, in the negatives, put it this way, I have no desire to come up here and teach God's word in flip-flops and shorts and a t-shirt. Now, you may say, well, why? Is it against God's word? No, it's got nothing to do with that. It's just how I was raised. You see, the fact is, I, was, I can dress down to a certain point, but I just cannot go any lower than that. I can't do it just because that's the way I was raised. Everybody, everybody with me? I'm not saying it's right, not saying it's wrong, not saying it's good, not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that desire to dress a certain way has just been built in for, to me from the way I was raised. You see, it turns out, our desires are influenced by who we are. And who we are has been molded by factors in com almost completely out of our control. I want you to think about this for a moment. 
Think about all the things that have made you who you are as a person. All the things that have made you who you are. Now think about all the ones that you had entirely no control over. You did not choose when you were born. If you were born in the 1700s, the 1800s, or the 1900s, you didn't choose that. You didn't choose what country you were born into. You didn't choose what part of the country you were born into. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your race. You didn't choose your gender. Now, right there, think about that. I am a white man born in the South. And somewhere there is a black woman born in the North. And those two things have invariably shaped who we are as people. Yet, neither one of us had any choice in the matter. None of those things. And yet, they, they had an incredible impact on me. I mean, just keep looking at it. You didn't choose your birth order. You didn't choose the religion you were raised in. You didn't choose your genetics or your intelligence or your temperament or your looks or your body type or your talents. You didn't choose any of those things. And yet all of those things work together to make you, in a large part, who you are as a person. So think about that for just a moment. you got all of these factors outside of your control determining who you are. And who you are is determining a vast majority of your desires, and your desires are determining your choices. You take out those middle two, what you've got is factors completely out of your control are determining many of your choices. Do you have a free will? Let me give an example. My friend Joe, Joe, raise your hand. That's my friend Joe. Y'all look at Joe back there and say hey to him. A few weeks ago, Joe comes on a Wednesday night for the first time. And uh, I am teaching on predestination. I believe that's right. And then afterwards, he walks up right over here and he says, Hey, introduce himself. Says, I enjoyed your teaching, but I got a question. And I said, uh, okay. And he, and he said, what about free will? And I said, uh, and, I, and I'm pretty sure this is verbatim what I said. I said, all right, Joe, let me ask you a question. I said, do you like football? And he said, yeah. And I said, who's your favorite team? And he said, uh, the Green Bay Packers. And I said, oh, okay. So I said, why are the Green Bay Packers your favorite team? And he said, I was born in Wisconsin. And I said to him, oh, you mean you didn't take a spreadsheet and list out all 32 teams and then come over and make a column of all the pros and make a column of all the cons and, 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 and balance them all out and wait and score and come up with the Packers? And I'm pretty sure I've seen a lot go on in his eyes. See, he, he was born in Wisconsin. He had no choice in that. He was born to a family that were Green Bay Packer fans. He had no choice in that. My question would be, did he have any other choice? Is that a free choice? I'm going to answer that in a bit, by the way. But at least let me say that this. It's not near as cut and dried as you think it is. It's not near as cut and dried as we think it is. I mean, just think about the choices we make in our life. Chocolate or vanilla, your taste buds, what you like or don't like, is that really a free choice? Or is that something you were born with? I've, I've run into people who will only drive Chevrolets. That's all they'll drive. And you say... Why do you only drive Chevys? Thinking, well, surely you've done a study and you've balanced. Oh, no, uh, I like Dale Earnhardt. 
Or they'll drive Fords because my daddy drove a Ford. Right? Knowles are Gators, King James or NIV, Democrats or Republicans. Just think it through. So many things that we choose have been invariably influenced by factors and completely out of our control. I can guarantee you, you didn't come to hardly any of those as a neutral or a blank slate. You had all this stuff, all this baggage that you bring, if you will, that's influencing you to choose one thing or the other. You see, it turns out that who you are, who you are is going to determine your choices. So we've learned three things, okay? True free will doesn't exist. We're not blank slates. We always bring desires that precede our choices. We always choose according to our strongest desire, and our desires have been influenced by factors completely out of our control. Okay, part four. We need another definition. Let's go back to where we started. I said to have a true free will, you should be able to make a decision that is not influenced or pre-inclined to choose one thing over the other. Well, it turns out that never happens. And in fact, it is an impossibility. So we need a new definition. So here's our new definition of a free will. If by free will you are saying this, these three things. Number one, you are not coerced in any way. Nobody's making you do it. Nobody's holding a gun to your head. Number two, you are responsible for the choice that you make. And number three, you are the active agent. In other words, there's not a, a puppet master with strings tied to you making you do these things. You are the one that is really making the choice. Okay? That is a good definition of free will. In fact, let's go back to Job. Let's apply that to him. Was he coerced or forced to be a Green Bay Packers fan? No. Is he responsible for that? Win or lose, good or bad? Yes. And was he the active agent? Was somebody pulling the strings? No. He made that choice. So if that is our definition of free will, then absolutely... Yes, we have a free will. If you're not coerced, uh, you're responsible for it, and you are the active agent, you are really making the choice, then absolutely we have free will. In fact, historic Christianity of all persuasions has always agreed on that definition. However, we left one thing out of the list. One item out of that list. And it's this item where all the disagreement occurs. In fact, it's this one thing that goes to the very root of what it means to have free will. And it's this. It's called the power of contrary choice. Or let me put it simpler. Does a person have the ability to choose against who they are? Does a person have the ability to choose contrary to who they are in their very nature. Now, that is a really good question, okay? Let's go back to Job one more time. Now, I want you to think about this. Can Job tomorrow make a decision that he is no longer going to pull for the Green Bay Packers, and he is, as of tomorrow, he is going to pull for the Chicago Bears, all right? Now, listen to me. But it has to be a decision from his heart. 
That means that as of tomorrow, he has to pull for the Bears the way he's always pulled for the Packers. And he has to hate the Packers the way he's always hated the Bears. Can he do that? Let me ask you, Seminole fans, could you tomorrow decide from this point on, I'm going to pull for the Gators the way I've always pulled for the Knolls, and I'm going to hate the Knolls the way I've always pulled for the Gators? Could you do that? No. There's no way. By the way, you can do it on the outside. You, you can say the right things, and you can act like it, but on the inside... You cannot choose against who you are. You just can't do it. We don't have the ability to, to do that. Now, I want to close with this. All of this talk that we've had so far has spiritual implications for you and I, okay? Up until the 4th century, nobody thought much about this. Everybody just assumed we had free will. By the way... Here we are in the, uh, in the tooth, uh, whatever, where are we in, 2021, whatever century that is. And let me tell you, nobody thinks about it. It's unbelievable. We just don't even think about it. We just assume we got free will and nobody really gives it much thought. Well, that's the way it was in the early part of, of the millennium. But this guy came along by the name of Augustine. And he was a bishop in Africa. And he was the real deal. He was a Christian, he was smart, he studied the Word of God, and he really began to think this, this stuff through. And, and what Augustine did is he saw man as sinful to our very core, that, that, that our nature is sinful, that is who we are. And so what he said is, because that's who you are at your core, you cannot choose God, you cannot love God, you cannot serve God, and you cannot obey God without His help just can't do it. You can't choose against who you are. Now, where does he get that from? Well, he read the Bible. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopards its spots? That's a rhetorical question. It's an impossibility. And he says, neither can you do good. It's impossible for you to do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Isaiah 64, 6, we are all like an unclean thing and our righteousness like filthy rags. Romans 3, 10 and 11, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. And of course, Romans 8, 7 through 9, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And there it is in bright red letters, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God in any way. You can't love God. You can't serve God. You can't obey God. You can't choose God because you are sinful to your core. That is who you are. You see, in, in, our, in the heart of hearts, the unbelieving man or woman is wicked. That is who they are. Therefore, they cannot in and of themselves do anything from their heart. By the way, they can do it on the outside. As the Pharisees did, right? You can, you can have a semblance of godliness, but the power's not there. Because it needs a changed heart. Go back to the Knolls and Gators or Green Bay. You, can't, you can look like it on the outside. But on your heart, you cannot go against who you are 
at your, your core. So this is what he began to argue. He said, people choose according to who they are. Those choices are free, yet they have one limitation. They cannot choose contrary to their sinful nature. See, Augustine believed something, and he came out and said this. He said, if we really want to obey God from the heart, then God has to give us a gift, and that gift is called grace. We can never do it on our own. He wrote a book called Confessions. It's about this thick, if you ever, if you ever got it. And in this book, he's, he's writing to God. And he wrote this. This is the most famous saying out of that book. He said this, My entire hope is exclusively in your very great mercy. Grant what you command and command what you will. See, what he's saying there is, God, you've commanded me all these things. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't lust. Don't do all these things. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you've told me, love your neighbor, love one another, uh, you know, love your enemies. And he's basically saying, I can't do it on my own. God, if you want me to do those things, you have to grant it to me. You have to give me the ability to do what you command. And he's saying, I trust in your mercy. By the way, there was a man at that time by the name of Pelagius. And, and Pelagius wrote, he actually wrote this. He said he recalled in horror as he read what uh, Augustine said. Because Pelagius believed that men are good. We've all got this core goodness and, and we don't need God to grant us anything. If God tells us to do something, then obviously we have the ability to do it. That's what he believed, but that's not what the Bible teaches. They had a big, a big debate about it and all this. And by the way, uh, Pelagianism ended up being declared a heresy. Augustine was right. We are wicked by nature and we need God's help to do anything to please Him. I'll close with this. Do we have free will? As unbelievers, we are sinners. Okay? That's our nature. That's who we are. And don't ever fool yourself. We love it. We love sin. Jesus said in John 3.19, This is the verdict. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and they love darkness. Light, goodness, Jesus has come into the world and they love darkness and sin and evil and corruption. They love those things. Are we free to choose as, as unbelievers? Absolutely. But we will always choose according to who we are and who we are as sinners. We will always choose according to our greatest desire. And as an unbeliever, do you know what our greatest desire is? Sin. A few weeks, I, I talked about Esau. And God just, he blessed Jacob. He chose Jacob. He showed mercy to Jacob. But he left Esau alone. Now, every day, Esau woke up with a free will. Every day, he had a choice. Sin or God? Myself or God? Evil or God? And every day he chose the thing that he wanted more than any other, and that was sin. Every day. He got up every day and he chose according to his strongest desire. He, he, he chose according to who he was at his core. 
and that was a sinner. We are free to choose within the confines of who we are. See, this is what's so beautiful about the new birth. It's what's so beautiful about the new birth is grace has been poured out on me. The Holy Spirit has come into me. He's changed my heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. I'm not that person anymore. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. And this new creation, I I now, for the very first time, can from the heart make a true free choice. Do I still fail? Absolutely. Are there times where that desire to sin overcomes that desire to obey Christ? Absolutely. But that's not who I am. That's not who I am in practice. I mess up. I fall. But I get back up and I keep pressing toward the one who gave it all for me. That's the beauty of regeneration. That's the beauty of the new birth. See, here's the problem with sinners. Are they free? They are. They're not being coerced. Nobody's forcing them to do anything. They're responsible for their choices. They're the active agent. They're really choosing. But yet their will is enslaved to sin. Who they are is enslaved to sin. And that is what they will always choose. Listen, just as clearly as the Bible teaches that man is unable to choose God because of his sinful nature, the Bible also tells us the one thing it takes to break our bondage from that sin, and that's grace. Wonderful, amazing, incredible grace. Ephesians 2, 1 and 9. I won't read the whole passage, but it says this, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, He shows mercy to whomever He will, and He hardens whomever He wills. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ by grace, by grace. By grace, you have been saved. See, that's why Jesus always said, and we talk about it all the time, you can't come to the Father without help. No one comes to the, to, to the Father. Who, uh, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father grants it to him. It's grace. It is grace alone that can set us free from the bondage of our Wheel. Thank you again for joining us today at River of Life. If this teaching has touched you today, or if you need somebody to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email to info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Visit rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions. Mm